0: you're listening to the co-main event podcast and now your hosts ben folks and chad dundas that's right you're listening to another episode of the co-main event mixed martial arts podcast i'm chad dundas that's ben folks we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent newsworthy and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts ben saturday afternoon we did what many said was impossible we pulled off yet another co-main event fight party yeah UFC 254 went down around noon in the one true time zone here, the main card at least. We partied through all six of those main card fights, headlined, of course, by Habib Nurmagomedov's victory over Justin Gaethje and uh, Habib's ensuing retirement, which uh, I think caught us all a little bit off guard, although perhaps in retrospect, we shouldn't have been that surprised.
1: Partying all through the daylight hours. Yes, we and, were uh, an unusual turn of events for the co event podcast, but a good time was had nonetheless. Kind of a uh, momentous afternoon in the world of mixed martial arts, though a lot of a lot of stuff to you're trying to find your footing still on a Monday following an event like that, which kind of tells you something about the significance of the people involved. Since as a full card, there wasn't a whole lot going on on this one, but it's just just with the. The shakeup with the lightweight title that you got now, the, all the the questions we find ourselves asking in the aftermath of Khabib's win and subsequent retirement, and then on top of that, you got our dude Bobby Knuckles winning another middleweight contender eliminator kind of fight. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, uh, what we're going to do this week, since we got so much mail over the weekend, we're going to do all questions considered here on the podcast, the thing that we sometimes do, uh, where it's going to be all listener mail questions for the entire hour of the show we got a lot of good ones about habib and the other stuff that we want to talk about in and around ufc 254 and then if there's time left at the end which i kind of doubt there will be but if there is we'll we'll talk a little bit about uh the dueling main events coming up this weekend that bellator and the ufc have with uh douglas lima and gegard mousasi squaring off in bellator and of course anderson silva with his what is purported to be his final fight here against uriah hall in the ufc so Uh, probably a slim chance that we get to talk about those things because we do have a lot of mail to try to get through here. But I guess the upside is that we got a lot of fun content all week over on the Patreon. Maybe we'll get an opportunity on the live chat or the Power Hour to talk more about Lima Musasi or uh, Silva Hall.
1: Yeah. Anderson Silva's final fight. I'm doing this with my fingers. Just saying. And also, I mean... I assume the question of whether MMA fighters can be believed when they tell us that they're done might even come up in our Khabib discussion. Who knows?
0: Yeah, it probably will. All right, let's start here from Shad Rap. Okay. A mail this week says, mm-hmm. the first round of Justin and Habib was some of the weirdest, wildest striking I've seen. It seemed in direct contrast to Gaethje's past couple fights where he's been cleaner and a bit more disciplined with his striking. He mentioned adrenaline in the post-fight interview. Do you think the atmosphere and pressure of the fight got Gaethje a little too hyped and a little too wild and got him taken down? Habib's absolute dominance of the sport notwithstanding. I think Habib would have gotten the nod regardless, but Gaethje looked uh, the wild throw caution to the wind fighter of a few years ago, as opposed to the disciplined striker he's been in the, in the past few fights. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how this fight went.
1: Yeah. Um, first of all, good to hear from Shad rap, who I believe is some kind of fishing lure.
0: Okay, nice. Uh, one of the first inanimate objects then to email the co yeah. podcast. Usually we just get dead celebrities, presidents, scientists,
1: European football stars,
0: a lot of footballers like to mail the show. Uh, he's not wrong that the first round of this thing was wild action probably typified by that weird step in lead uppercut that Habib threw at one point was, which was just kind of like kind of threw it off to the side. Like he was throwing away a penny. He didn't want Uh, one of the stranger strikes that I've seen in a while, but like this was an action packed fight. It was, it was pretty wild throughout the first round. The thing that struck me most, and you know, we can talk about the thing that struck too also, but like the, the thing that struck me most immediately after watching this fight is that for a large majority of it? It seemed like Justin Gaethje actually succeeded in having Habib Nurmagomedov fight a Justin Gaethje kind of fight. Like most of this thing was uh, contested on the feet in the striking department, and most of it w- was the kind of the kind of fight that if you thought there was going to be any uh, Justin Gaethje style fight against Habib Nurmagomedov that he could capitalize on, it might have been this one but i think you saw a couple of different things during those you know round and a half whatever this thing went uh first you saw uh habib nurmagomedov absolutely dominating the two ground exchanges like the you know most of the fight was on the feet but the two very short ground exchanges were clearly uh where the deal got done here in this fight and and the second one where habib ultimately Uh, got the triangle choke and choked Justin Gaethje unconscious was obviously the definitive one. But it was almost like those grappling exchanges, uh, you know, equaled out or succeeded anything that we saw in the striking department, despite the fact that most of this thing was contested on the feet. Number two, I think you saw the forward pressure of Habib Nurmagomedov. And if it could be said that anything unnerved Justin Gaethje in this fight, if anything caused him to perhaps look a little bit wilder or a little bit more aggressive, uh than he has in his past couple of of fights i would wager it was probably that forward forward pressure of habib just kind of like uh seemed like it made him feel nervous made him feel uh you know a little bit anxious like he had to 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 really stake out some territory in the octagon and do his own thing which i can understand how that would be that would be number one like kind of understandable for that to happen to you in a title fight where the champion is going to fight that way and number two uh would probably be kind of hard to simulate in training what do you think yeah
1: well you notice when we got back to the corner after the first round and Trevor Whitman was telling Justin Gates, "G, slow down. Yeah. And I think it was good advice. I think in part, because what you saw a lot about in that first round was kind of the same stuff that we saw going back and watching Justin Gates early in his career, which is, there's a lot of kind of off balance stuff from him. And I think some of that comes with just fighting at this frantic, like high pace, and that, that Khabib was kind of setting, but also I think some of it is title fight jitters a little bit. You know, here's the big moment against this guy who is so tough to beat and you you can't make any mistakes against that guy. And you get a little bit worked up and it seemed like Justin Gaethje was falling back into that a little bit. And you're right, I mean, the pressure of Khabib, that is something I think that, You would kind of expect like he's taking it slow in the first minute or so of the fight where both guys are trying to feel each other out. But then once he gets into his groove, he's going to be trying to get up in your face. And for Justin Gates, you could tell like the way he was moving around the cage, but then also trying to pivot off and get back to the center. He had it so much in his head. Like, don't let this guy back you up into the fence. Get it back out there into space. And, you know, I saw Luke Thomas pointing out on Twitter and it was a good moment, like the GIF of Khabib setting up that takedown right before he goes to mount where he shoots in uh, off of a, a Justin Gaethje leg kick, I believe. We, another thing we had talked about beforehand about how Justin Gaethje's love of the leg kick for setting stuff up uh, was going to play in this fight. He landed a few good leg kicks here. yeah, And yet it's like Khabib doesn't even really need to catch the kick itself. He knows when you throw that kick, even if that kick lands, he knows that for a moment you're standing there on one foot. Which means you can't really move backwards and, and out of the way as quickly as you could, and so he's just waiting for that kick. And once he feels that kick, he shoots in. And Justin Gaetz he tried to sprawl around so that he was sprawling with his hips back pointed back out into the open space. And then Khabib adjusted by sort of throwing his weight forward to to get his head behind, like under the arms and and up behind the shoulders, which so makes G- Gatesy kind of base out on the mat, put his hands down, and then that creates the opportunity to get to to scramble onto his back, and then then you're in the Khabib world, and yeah. you're in a world of shit at that yeah. point. Uh, and so, like, I think that probably was a combination of things like Khabib's pressure, Justin Gatesy trying to stick to his game plan, but also getting worked up in the moment and you know a guy like justin gaethje he's not gonna be content with a game plan that's just go out here and don't fuck up he wants to hurt him like he wants to be able to land his own stuff but without opening himself up too much and it seemed like he just couldn't quite figure out how to do that and couldn't really find a comfort like any any sort of comfort zone in this fight before he had a chance to it was over basically yeah.
0: Yeah, here. let's take this one from Roy Roy Orland, which I, he writes, I totally had Habib giving up top position to b- win by the quintessential jujitsu jitsu move, Herzog missing the tap, and Gaethje going to sleep. Now I got to figure out what to do with all this prop bet parlay money.
1: <laughs> so he had uh, Habib in round two via submission that the referee misses.
0: Yep, triangle choke from the bottom, the way we all thought Habib would end this fight right uh well let's talk about the the finishing exchange though because it was interesting unusual uh and a, a great capper for this for this fight and ultimately a capper for the career thus far of habib Nurmagomedov. uh that that final exchange where habib kind of wraps his arms around justin gaethje's midsection drags him down immediately jumps to back mount and then you know as they kind of scramble to the mat as Roy Orland points out, gives up top position, secures that triangle choke. And like, not necessarily a move that we thought was coming from Habib Nurmagomedov and not even the normal response time. I guess you could say once somebody gets in a triangle choke, like when somebody gets in a triangle choke in a professional mixed martial arts bout at this high of level, very seldom do you see somebody go out that fast, Yeah, which I guess uh, just speaks to the technique and leg strength of abib Nurmagomedov, because as soon as Gaethje was in that thing, this fight was essentially over.
1: Yeah, well, I also saw somebody pointing out that he had tried basically that exact move. I can't remember who it was, which uh, former opponent it was, um, but that he had done that exact same thing. Maybe it was uh, – uh, well, no, I, I'm not going to guess who it was, but, but – one of his previous fights, he, he did the exact same exact transition where he's like in mount and basically in mount in a way where he's just sitting on your chest and trying to isolate one arm off to the side. And the way he, he got it and he ran out of time and that one just like the round ended the way he got it with Justin Gaethje was in part by when he's giving up top position at first threatening that arm like you're like you're looking to extend that arm to get the guy to kind of like shoulder down into the choke more trying to bring his arm back closer to his body and protect it a little bit. And in so doing just put himself way worse in the choke point, getting himself to the point where he is like, you don't even have to break the guy's posture down because he's breaking it down for you. And then once he does that, it's so hard to get it back. Like he, he seemed like he was thinking maybe I can lift him up and, and slam my way out of it or lift him up and and try to shake him off or something. But that just wasn't going to work. And you're right. Like he, he, did not have a lot of time once he was in that choke. It, it was on pretty tight. And kind of to the point where it's hard for me to blame referee Jason Herzog because you're right, it did happen so quickly. Justin Gaethje was looking to tap, but he's also looking to tap in kind of a flailing way at a couple different places on Khabib's body where it seemed like, you know, you don't get the th- three straight quick taps like the way you would expect to where it's very clear and concise. If instead it looked kind of like he was tapping, but also kind of like he's trying to find some place on Habib's body to hit or slap at yeah. as like an escape route. And so, and then before you know it, he's out and yeah. it, it, that was, it's, and it's uh, also like a blood choke. So it's not super dangerous to like, if he tries to tap and goes out, it's not like you're putting the guy's health at risk or anything there. So like, I, I don't, don't know how much you really even want to criticize the ref there, uh, but you're right. Cause it's just like, Khabib clearly had this in his arsenal as here's one of the things. And maybe it's just he had it in his arsenal and he has refined it over the years. And now once he gets in that situation, uh he is not at all scared. Because like that's uh, if you're looking at Khabib's game plan in this fight, you would probably tell him as his corner man, like, hey, look, we want to be on top beating this guy up. Don't give up top position for a submission because if he gets out, then he's on top of you and he has a chance maybe to rain some punches down. Habib clearly not really worried about that. Like yeah. that's like the confidence in his own technique and his own game, which you know makes sense when you consider what a dominant champ he's
0: been. Yeah, and obviously we've never seen Justin Gaethje choked out before. This was only his third career loss. The previous two were both uh, TKOs earlier in his UFC uh, run. But I'm just going to extrapolate that Justin Gaethje seems like a tough dude to tap. Like, yeah, you can totally see. I guess it's not hard to imagine that Justin Gaethje might be a "you're going to have to damn near kill me out there" kind of guy, and so I think for Habib to elicit the tap, which I agree was weird and awkwardly placed, and I don't really uh, blame Jason Herzog for missing it, just because it was, you know, he's tapped on his face, which you don't see a lot, and immediately after the word Justin Gaethje went unconscious. So uh, I don't know, doesn't seem like a a terrible miss from Jason Herzog to me, but uh, yeah, he's Habib's out there forcing. Justin damn Gaethje to tap out to a triangle choke must have been uncomfortable to say the least. Uh, Here's a question. We got two questions here about Habib's retirement. This one from Johnny Fletcher, who writes, I can't remember a more emotional moment in the decade plus I've followed MMA than Habib's sudden retirement. As fans, we often wonder what effect a loved one's death may have on someone's fighting abilities, but here we saw how it affected Habib and his family outside the cage. It was a rare moment in MMA where seemingly everyone came together to appreciate and empathize with someone, and at least for now, even UFC brass is in support of Habib's decision despite all the money it leaves on the table. What feelings do the end of Habib's legacy and the subsequent response from the MMA verse bring out for you two? Uh I mean, I feel like you gotta feel good for him if this truly is the end. We can we can talk in a couple minutes here after this next question about what what we think the most likely out the most likely outcome is here, but uh, to go out at twenty nine and zero undefeated, with a, a ton of impressive performances and and the most impressive probably in the last handful of fights for Habib Nurmagomedov, uh, undefeated champion walking away on his own terms in his early thirties without having sustained a ton of damage. It's the retirement that you ask for. It's the retirement that as fans and and media guys and people who've just been around the sport for a long time, it's the quintessential retirement that we ask for and never get, this is the way to do it. And you know, with the last couple buy rates uh, from the Connor fight on, you got to imagine Habib probably isn't hurting for money at this point. So uh, if it goes down this way, it's almost I'm not even going to say almost, it's the perfect MMA retirement.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I do like Johnny Fletcher saying that uh it was a rare moment in MMA where seemingly everyone came together to appreciate and empathize with someone. I would say not everyone if you follow John Jones on Twitter. But <laughs> uh yeah, it is I mean, maybe that's what made John Jones's weird decision to go on a Twitter rant about himself. And his own accolades compared to Khabib's at that moment seemed so jarring because everybody else was being like, okay, this is this guy's moment. And we all feel for him. And we realize, like Johnny Fletcher said, you know, we were thinking, how is it going to affect this guy in the fight to go in there without his dad? And instead, maybe we should have been asking, like, how is it going to affect his feelings about continuing to fight without his dad after, after this one, which he's agreed to already? And so, uh, I don't know. It, to me, I'm still skeptical about this being it like this being the real retirement. And some of that is like you said, like the, that this is the kind of retirement we always ask for, but it almost never really happens this way. Yeah. And whenever somebody is retiring for reasons other than anything having to do with their ability to keep doing this, like it's one thing if you're retiring, cause it's like, you've been losing, you've been getting beat up and you don't want to get beat up anymore. And, or you just don't love it anymore. You, you don't enjoy it. And you, you can't like I've heard the fighters. I believe I've heard some fighters say, like, if you came to me right now and told me that I had to go back into another training camp to prepare for another fight, I would say just shoot me in the face because I just I can't I can't do it. I can't even entertain the idea of doing it. And like the thought of being back in there in the gym and putting myself through it all, like the way you have to to get ready for a fight makes me feel a little physically ill. And when those people say that, I'm like, OK, yeah, you've hit that point. And you're not coming back from that. But when Khabib says something like, you know, no way am I coming back out here with my without my father or I, I made a promise to my mother. I'm not going to say, like, I don't believe that those are strong motivations, that those are strong emotions, because I'm sure that they are. But I wonder how those age in like six months, because, you know, you're sitting there at 29 and 0, you know that Dana White might throw a suggestion in your ear or Ali Abdelaziz, who has a vested interest in seeing you continue. He might throw the idea in your ear via Dana White. Like, hey, man, wouldn't 30, and zero be really nice? Would not that be a nice round number? Plus, wouldn't it be great to get one last big, huge paycheck? Like we give you a fight that, like something against like Conor McGregor or something that you know you're going to win. And you come back, you do one more, you get one more big page. Think of all the people in your life you could help and make that finan- that extra financial security of a few extra million dollars. I think stuff like that is going to be really hard to resist, especially when it seems like he's better than he's ever been. Yeah, like you look at him in that Justin Gatesy fight, and you're like, there's not even a hint of any sort of decline. Yeah, physically.
0: To that end, here's a question from Dan Alexander, who writes, What a way to go out. I had this warm, fuzzy feeling. You know the kind that happens when the decent fighter slash hero figure, and in parentheses, bear fighting and homeless man baiting aside, uh, wins and then leaves the UFC on their own terms, not ending up a damaged gatekeeper, not ending up broke after giving their all for us and the company. Hearing Habib speak toward the end of the fight and watching him dispatch Justin Gaethje had me all emotional. You could see how much his family genuinely means to him. He doesn't use his kids as convenient props, doesn't flaunt his wife, and you'll rarely see him beating up old men in pubs. In a culture <laughs> of trash talk, I have no idea who that could be a shot at. Uh, <laughs> in a culture of trash talk and low moral fight selling BS, here's a guy that as Frank, that's Sinatra and not Shamrock, and many drunk karaoke fans saying he did it his way. I'm not sure how to end this. Ending one, no location, Habib remains retired. Ending two, Dana takes the bait, offers a king's ransom for Habib versus GSP. Habib did seem to focus on his legacy in his post-fight interview, which must have given Dana some breadcrumbs for hopes, for hope. Uh, thanks for all you guys do. So I was going to ask you folks, what's the most likely outcome here of this Habib Nurmagomedov retirement? Because I agree with all the stuff that you said before. You know, you see guys retire in these circumstances... And I agree, man. One, one fight short of 30-0 and 0 is kind of an awkward time to do it. Uh, but at the same time, maybe he feels like he has nothing else to accomplish. But, uh, you know, you see guys changing their mind once they get a little bit of dis- distance from the cage, once they, uh, you know, get to relax a little bit, heal up a little bit, maybe in Habib's t- uh, case, some time to heal and make amends and uh, mourn for his father. But if there's one guy out there who seems like the kind of guy who might make up his mind and stick to it, it's Habib Nurmagomedov. So as I sit here right now, I have no idea what the future is for Habib Nurmagomedov. What do you think is the most likely thing to happen in terms of this specific retirement?
1: Well, I mean, in fairness, uh, people often hold up Rocky Marciano as one of the only, like the, the heavyweight champion who actually... Went out on top, retired undefeated. You know what his final record was? Forty nine and zero. Oh,
0: okay. so
1: he was able to allu- resist the allure to come back, win one more, and then at an even fifty and zero. And it worked out okay for him. You know, so hey, if he could do it, maybe Khabib can do it at twenty nine and zero. Uh, I mean, can we take it as a given that Dana White is going to try to talk Khabib out of this?
0: I mean, he said he wasn't at the press conference, so you know he probably is, right?
1: Yeah. Well, like he's not going to try to do it right now, maybe. Yeah.
0: Because
1: the things GSP was saying earlier, like a few months earlier, was, hey, Khabib is the one fight that would really interest me at this point, but I don't think the UFC is going to go for it because it kind of came back, won their middleweight title, and then bounced again, and they're mad about it, and they're not going to give me a chance to do that with a lightweight title. But if you're sitting there right now, as the USC, and you're going, well, could be, let's say, could be really is sticking to the no Connor, no way, don't want that guy in my life kind of stance, which honestly would be entirely reasonable if he just decided, I don't want to fight him because, A, I don't want to do him the favor of even putting him in a big fight for a title, and B, I don't want to have to talk or think about the guy. Fuck him. And you know what? I'd be like, hey. I absolutely 100% get why you'd feel that way. You came by it, honestly. Uh, It's a fair stance.
0: You beat the shit out of him. Yeah. There's not like, like, yeah, we, we
1: saw the fight. We don't have a whole lot of lingering doubts about how things might have gone or how things would go in a rematch. So fine. But if the UFC is looking at it and going, okay, well, we lose our lightweight champion either way. We have to figure out something to do with the vacant title. We face all that same issues that would have scared us about doing a GSP fight to begin with. Like, we're we're already there. Wouldn't we rather be there or deal with the possibility of being there after a huge mega payday? Which you would absolutely get right now if you could match up Khabib and George St. Pierre. I mean, a part of me wants GSP to not agree to that fight because I don't think it goes well for him, especially now. You know, he's just a little older. Khabib's absolutely at the peak of his form. The the style that Khabib excels at, I think, is a pretty bad matchup for George. So I would want him to kind of stay out of that fight, just because I'd rather not see George St. Pierre get elbowed in the mouth a bunch. But if you're the UFC and you're looking at what you could possibly do here, and the choices are, well, try to throw Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier in for the vacant title... That won't be bad or one-off mega fight between GSP and Khabib. And if we end up without a champion after that, so be it. At least we end up without a champion with a whole lot more money than we had
0: before. Yeah. We did get this question from Dr. Top about the possibility of a GSP Habib fight and whether that might be something Habib would come back for. But I think, like, he asks a good question in here where he says, Well, Habib has cemented his legacy as the best fighter of all time. Would a win, or a best fighter of his time, excuse me, uh, would a win over GSP cement his legacy as the best of all time? Would GS or would Habib ragdoll GSP like he has with every other opponent? So I guess I agree with you that. One thing that you could see being on the table, if GSP was up for it, which I also agree with you, I kind of hope that he's not, but like if GSP is up for it and if the UFC is willing to give everybody their money, uh, I could see them waving that underneath Habib's nose and I could see Habib being tempted by it. I guess the question is, if you get to it against a 40-year-old George St. Pierre, what does it really mean if Habib... Handles him in Gaethje esque fashion. If it looks like uh, McGregor, Poirier, Habib, or uh, Gaethje outcomes, does it mean squat for Habib's legacy, or is it just us feeling sad about George Saint Pierre?
1: Yeah, I mean, because you know, if he did beat this version of George Saint Pierre, everybody'd be like, "Well, George should have stayed retired anyway. He he was great in his time, but he, he, you know." Age catches up to everybody, and that's what happened here. Because right now, like it seems like the conversation a lot of people want to have right now, spurred in part by John Jones trying to take Khabib's ma- moment and make it all about him, is who is the pound-for-pound pound greatest of all time, right? Because Dana White's going to do a thing where the last guy he saw who made him money is the pound-for-pound pound greatest. But uh, I think no matter how you want to rank him, yeah, consensus would be that it's those three guys, GSP, John Jones, and Khabib kind of in the conversation right now. And a lot of it, like, depending on who you choose as your greatest, I think s- tells us something about what you value and like what you're, what you're looking for in your greatest. Cause GSP held it down as the dominant champ in his division for a long time. And toward the end started to look maybe a little bit vulnerable, but still was the dominant guy at his weight class at his time. Stepped away for a couple of years, came back, won a title in a different division, and like that's impressive stuff. Khabib was even more dominant as like as champion, but for a much shorter time. But like to the point where he's not even he's not getting dropped in fights. Nobody is even landing really good punches. Like, nobody's cutting him open. Like he's never looks the least bit vulnerable in any of these fights. But doesn't have the same longevity. And John Jones held it down for damn near a decade. He was a a fucking meteor at the beginning of his career where he seizes the the light heavyweight championship when he's super young, holds on to it for almost 10 years, only loses it due to outside the cage stuff. But then also that's another thing people are going to hold against it. Then we're going to be like people who are looking for a reason not to call John Jones, the greatest in this whole conversation after the Khabib fight are going to be like, you failed drug test. You got the title stripped from you a bunch. You ran away from that scene of an accident with a pregnant lady. And like you're, you're surprised that people maybe don't like you enough to, because some of this does come down to personal preference. You know, like what what kind of fighting style you like, what kind of like accolades impress you, all that sort of stuff. And so I think a Khabib win over GSP, if you were already of a mind to be like GSP is the greatest and his run uh, is still unequaled. I don't know if, G- if Khabib beating up a elder version of GSP dissuades you from that. But I can see how Khabib, if you go to him and you say, like, all right, I know you're not interested in another Conor McGregor fight and, you know, trying to make Tony Ferguson again doesn't seem like it's really lighting anybody's world on fire. But what about this GSP thing? Like, legacy-wise, I can see why that would still mean something to Khabib.
0: Yeah. Uh, As you might imagine, we got a lot of emails about the potential of a lightweight title tournament. So I'm going to read these two from Stephanie Howell and David Lauderay. Stephanie Howell writes, I just watched The Secret, and I have to say, I think we can will a lightweight t- tournament into existence. We can use social media and maybe meditate or something. How many people should be in it? Use your influence, fellas, please. Even the MMA gods wouldn't strike down an idea as grand as a lightweight tournament. It's real. Visualize. Thoughts? And then okay, David, I appreciate then, no, that. Let me, let me let me do David Lauderay. Okay. David Lotter writes, boom, lightweight is now awesome. Why? 12-man tournament. The top four seeds get buys into the second round. Use the UFC rankings, inserting Michael Chandler at around the sixth seed. This will, of course, never happen. If the UFC listens to fans and does some sort of tournament to determine the next lightweight champion, it will be a bullshit BCS college football-style four-man tournament. But good God, man, can you see it? Can you see the 12-man red panty lightweight tournament in your mind's eye. Give me that. Give me all of it. Or I guess we can just do a fight between two of the top guys and pretend they're now the champion. Yeah, I guess let's do that instead.
1: See, Stephanie Howell comes with a a positive vision for the future that if we all just focus on it, maybe we can bring it uh, around. David Lauderay instead going to act like we're doomed, but let's have fun talking about what – what the world would be like if we weren't
0: yeah i mean first of all there is no chance that the ufc does a tournament here despite the fact that i implored them to do that on twitter on saturday afternoon after this fight was over the most likely outcome is you've already got maybe dustin poirier and conor mcgregor booked for january you probably just say that's for the vacant yeah lightweight title but there's several different options here and i love uh David Latorre's idea for a 12-man like Montana high school football playoff style 12-team tournament. But even if you just did the four-man tournament and you had Gaethje, Poirier, Ferguson, and McGregor, uh, or if you can't do like a two-fight deal with Conor McGregor, you could throw Chandler in there. Even that would be awesome. And I saw a lot yeah. of people floating the idea of like, hey, man, you're doing Fight Island anyway. You're acting as your own uh Commission over there. You could do a four man one night tournament if you wanted, or you could have both of the opening round fights on one night and then have the final main event, a pay-per-view the following month or a couple of months down the road, whatever you wanted to do in that case. But while we're dreaming, Ben, while we're dreaming about stuff that would never happen. I just want to say, if you look at the lightweight UFC rankings, and envision a 16-man single el- elimination tournament, there is not a bad damn fight in the first round. Yeah. As was noted on Twitter by our man Josh Gross also on Saturday. But I just want to say, like, let's say, just for argument's sake, you throw Michael Chandler into this thing as the 16 seed. He deserves better, but this is just going to make it easier for me to do the do the bracket. Here's your fights. Here's the fights that you would have in the first damn round of this thing. Your 116 fight would be Justin Gaethje against Michael Chandler. Your 215 okay. fight would be Dustin Poirier against Donald Cerrone.
1: Okay, wait, hold on. Time out. Time out. <laughs> so you're saying you throw Michael Chandler in at the bottom of the ring and, and seed him number 16 and you tell Justin Gaethje, "Hey, your reward for being the top seed in this tournament is to fight uh Michael Chandler instead of like whoever gets draws number like 14, uh, fights drew Dober.
0: I implore you to not let logic okay. screw All right. this up. All right, All right. Go We're on. just, we're just dreaming. The only reason I put Chandler in at 16 was because it just makes it easier. We don't have to figure out what the fights would be. Just put him in enough. there at 16, uh, your, your three versus, uh, 14 fight would be Tony Ferguson versus drew Dober. Your four versus, uh, 13 fight would be Conor McGregor against Gregor Gillespie, to which I say, lol, uh, <laughs> you'd have Dan Hooker versus Islam Makachev. You'd have Charles Oliveira versus Benil Dariush. You'd have Paul Felder versus Kevin Lee, and you'd have Ally Aquinta versus Diego Ferreira. You telling me that there's a bad fight in there? There's not a bad fight in that 16 man tournament. I'm just saying.
1: Yeah. Here's what I would suggest as a counter to that. Like just, You're dreaming awful big. I like that about you. Keep that energy, Chad Dundas. Don't let this town take that from you. However, what if we have an eight-man tournament and we select a few alternates? Because goddammit, you know you're gonna need them. Yeah. You know you're gonna need some alternates. Now, whether you could get Conor McGregor to participate in this is for me the the big question. But also, like if you're gonna do Conor McGregor versus Dustin Poirier for a vacant title as your more typical UFC response don't you also have to be asking "Mm, do we want to take a chance that Conor McGregor is going to be a lightweight champ because it doesn't end up like don't you think we'll just end up doing an interim title fight nine months from now when it's clear he's not going to defend the belt like so let's just for the sake of argument right now let's take Conor McGregor out of the picture let's assume what he really wants to do is go box Manny Pacquiao and we tell him You know, go with God and we're going to be over here having a good time in an eight man lightweight tournament. So you take him out. You put in Michael Chandler. Yeah. You know, you got Paul Felder sitting there at number seven right now. His attitude about whether he wants to continue fighting has been back and forth a little bit. But I think you tell him, hey, how'd you like to be in this lightweight tournament where the winner gets the title and like throw in a cash prize, too. Just for the sake of like old times sake, throw in a giant ass check, man. Throw in a giant ass check, uh, the, the size of like a compact car that says a million dollars on it that you can hold up over your head when you're the winner. Confetti rains down from the sky, plus you get the UFC title. Like, I think he would be willing to be a full time fighter again in exchange for something like that. And then, you know, you could just take the UFC rankings one through eight, uh, Justin Gaethje, Dustin Poirier, Tony Ferguson, Michael Chandler in the place of Conor McGregor, uh, Dan Hooker, Charles Oliveira, Paul Felder, Diego Fehera, Uh, And then you can choose from guys like Ally Quinta. I mean, Kevin Lee's probably still out for a while. Uh, Benil Dariush, Islam Makachev, Gregor Gillespie, Drew Dober, Donald Cerrone, guys like that as your alternates. Yeah. You Then you don't have to have it stretch out for a super long time. If you have an eight man tournament, you know, you you get the thing over with and and a few, like you get the thing over within a calendar year yeah, uh, without there being like too much ambitious, like scheduling or matchmaking and everything. Um, And by the end of it, it doesn't matter who comes out. It It doesn't matter if drew Dober comes in as a fucking alternate at the last minute and wins the, the title. It, Still, you've gone through the tournament, you've generated momentum and interest with each stage as you've gone. And then whoever wins the tournament, tournaments grant that automatic, like, feeling of legitimacy. And then you go from there. Whereas if you just try to put up two guys for a vacant, lightweight title fight, the winner is going to have to, like, he's going to be looked at as the champion for now. And, but then we're going to have to wait and see how that plays out because it's not like he got there by beating absolutely everybody in the division.
0: Yeah. We reiterate. This isn't going to happen, but
1: I want to, I'm on Stephanie Howell's side. Let's start telling ourselves that it is going to happen. Let's visualize the change we want to see in the world. Let's manifest it. Manifest that shit. Chad Dundas.
0: And the thing is, if you're going to have fight Island, why, if not for something like this, if, if not to like make Dana White's single elimination, game of death style tournament on a remote exotic Island, dreams come true why are we even messing around with the fight a toll man just give me a give me a goddamn tournament
1: because the government of abu dhabi is paying them too i guess oh i'm true. sorry I'm, I'm just giving like actual answers you wanted like a more kind of philosophical
0: answer I'm going to read this one from Brendan Faherty, who writes, How many MMA fighters have truly gone out on top? Presuming GSP and Habib both stay retired, who else is even in their category? Boss Rutan is the closest I can think of, and I don't think Cejudo stays retired, but I'm running dry after those guys. I mean, is Hickson Gracie next? Surely Hickson is alone on top if he is allowed to negotiate his own set of rules because Hickson going to Hickson. Who am I forgetting? Anyone. This is a good question, and I can't think of anyone else. I, you know,
1: I got G- two words for you. Cole Conrad.
0: Okay. <laughs> I mean, the I mean,
1: heavyweight champ went out undefeated, went and got himself a, a good paying job with uh, agricultural futures.
0: I mean, that, and that is, that's the ultimate, that's beyond the top of the hill. Yeah. Not only retiring undefeated, but then going to make a lot of money in those ag futures. That's, that's and really boss. Whole game. boss. Ruten, I mean, it's hard I don't know to if feel he, really good about the boss root retirement since it happened because he literally couldn't go on anymore.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's it's, I don't think he would say it was going out on top so much as going out because you could barely walk for a while there. I remember once telling me when Frank Shamrock was trying to talk up a fight between him and boss root and bosses, you know, like in his forties at the time and his knees and everything were super bad. And he's like, I can't even train. And that's why he knows it. He knows that I can't, possibly agree to this. And in trying to explain to me how bad his, his body felt and how bad his knees were some days he was like, some days, man, I got to walk to the mailbox backwards. And I was like, I have no idea what that means or how it would help your knees, but it does create a visual image. So thank you for that. But yeah, I don't know if he would be like, yeah, look, well, I, I rode off into the sunset. Like he, he limped off into the sunset cause he had to.
0: Yeah. I still think GSP is probably the best since he comes back in a higher weight class and wins the title there and then pieces out the game. But this Habib one, just considering all this, the outside the cage stuff that was going on and how emotional it clearly was, uh, is one of the greats. It's one of the all-time yeah. great MMA retirements and probably one of the all-time great like post-fight moments of all time.
1: How long is it going to take? of him not fighting and not even talking about fighting and stuff like that. Cause I agree about Cejudo. I don't think Sahudo stays retired. He already went, he was like right away after he announced his retirement on Twitter, constantly talking about making people bend the knee and coming back and like how it was just clearly a matter of money for him. How long do we have to go with Khabib without any of that, without any even whispers of a comeback before you believe, okay, he's definitely retired and, and we can all just forget about it.
0: I mean, one of the amazing things is he's only 32 years old. Yeah. So like literally 10 years probably. We probably like uh, – he's – you know, this is – we've all been sitting in, in the MMA barbershop a long time. We've seen a lot of guys come in and claim they weren't going to get haircuts and then they ended up getting <laughs> haircuts. <laughs> this That's already such a tortured metaphor and I love it. And Habib is like literally 10 years. Like Habib could come back when he's 40 and he could roll in off the street and fight whoever was the UFC welterweight champion a decade from now and we would probably be interested in it
1: so i mean i i say if we go 2 years without he's not even showing up to the barbershop to play checkers you know he's not he's not even poking his head in when he's downtown uh running errands with his wife like he doesn't even poke his head in to see you know, what's on the racing forum that day or to see how the guys are doing. None of that. If we go two years without any of that stuff from Khabib, I'll be like, okay, that was really it.
0: He just strolls by the big plate glass window with his flowing locks in the the breeze.
1: (laughs) Doesn't even look, doesn't even cast a glance inside at the rest of us. Just like, like it's a vacant storefront as far as he's concerned.
0: We got this one from uh, Marlo Stanfield. So nice okay. to see characters from The Wire checking in. He says, serve me up some Poirier versus McGregor for the now vacant title fight with the side of Michael Chandler versus Tony Ferguson. Now, we've already talked about Poirier and McGregor. It seems like the most likely thing to happen for the lightweight title. But all of this stuff kind of leaves Michael Chandler a little bit unsettled here because you know, he, he went to Abu Dhabi. He did everything he was supposed to do. He made weight. He did his stand-up interview outside the Octagon uh, before the event, and uh, n- now we're not quite sure, you know, what the next step is for Michael Chandler. He says he wants to take a little bit of time off because uh, although he didn't fight, he's been in camp for a long time and he was ready to fight and he, he needs a little time to recuperate. When he comes back, what's the best move, Ben, for Michael Chandler in the 155 pound division here?
1: Yeah, well if you're going to do a Poirier versus McGregor for the vacant title, like if you're going to go or or anybody versus anybody for the vacant title, if you're going to go that route with it, which as we know is usually how the UFC chooses to go. Michael Chandler versus somebody as a backup fight on that same card makes a whole lot of sense because just the way things are with everything that's going on trademark, you're going to want some options there on the same card just in case like there's a, late injury or a COVID positive or something, and you have to pull somebody from the main event and you were really hoping that you were going to get that title situation sorted out. It's nice to be able to reach down below, like into the co-main event, pull somebody out of that and still keep your main event together. Plus I think as we talked about the, the issue you're going to face is if you have a vacant lightweight title fight, whoever wins it, we're going to be kind of like, okay, now what is this person really the champ and what happens now? If you do something like, like, title fight at on top and then Michael Chandler versus Tony Ferguson as the co-main event, then you already create in our minds a clear progression about what's going to happen next. It's probably going to be like the winner of the main event will defend his new title against the winner of the co-main event. And it just makes sense to, to order them that way. And honestly, like stylistically, if you look at those two fights, Poirier versus McGregor, if you could pull that one off with Michael Chandler versus Tony Ferguson on the other card, like hard to go wrong there. I think you get two great fights out of that. And then however it ends up any possible outcome you can work with.
0: All right. Moving on to some of the other stuff from this card. We got this one from Sonny Weathers who writes based on my knowledge of the awesome 1987 video game Shinobi. Okay. (laughs) Alexander Volkov's tattoo is an Oni mask also called the devil or demon mask. It's a symbol of protection. Samurais often wore Oni masks. Volkov is also a cover-up of his less than stellar stylized, uh, manta ray tattoo oh, now,
1: okay this was so, it, a, so it's doing two things then
0: doing a lot of work back there this yeah. was the topic of conversation on the fight party alexander volkov shows up to defeat wald harris via second round tko in a heavyweight fight here on the ufc 254 main card but what everyone wanted to know was sup with the new back piece alexander volkov because that thing was extraordinary really and not the kind of thing you expect to see when a dude whose front piece looks like volkov when he turns around it's it's shocking it's a shocking yeah. thing to see
1: yeah well and thinking of it as a cover-up tattoo of a less than stellar stylized manta ray tattoo as sunny weather puts it starts to make a little more sense because maybe if you get yourself a big manta ray tattoo and you're like i don't love it i want something to cover it up but i'm gonna have to get something fucking big to take care of this thing like I'm not, I'm not going to cover this up with just like a little heart or something. Like I got to go, I got to think of something expansive, and there you go. Yeah, though it is just the disconnect between what you'd expect when you look at the guy's face and then what you see when he takes off his shirt and turns around is pretty stark.
0: Yeah, indeed. Uh, when this next question comes to us from Jean Paul Sartre.
1: Oh, all right. Good to hear. The
0: Put your thinking cap on for this one.
1: little French existentialism up here in the CME.
0: He writes, well, Jared Cannoneer, beyond his belief of harnessing the powers of rock crystals like pyrite, UFC middleweight Jared Cannoneer's Twitter account is filled with conspiracy theories about QAnon, Antifa, Bill Gates, the George Floyd killing, Freemasonry, and the deep state. He refer- referred to former U.S. President uh, Barack Obama as a quote lion ass Freemason before signing off with the phrase death to pedophiles Phew! I say this loss makes me feel good a little bit. We don't need him to get too much airtime. What says you please discuss amongst yourselves. Now we commented on an earlier show that we felt like we were walking the razor's edge of enjoyment of Jared Cannonier leading into the Robert Whitaker fight. And I don't even know how much now we need to discuss uh, the stuff that's happening on Jared Cannonier's Twitter timeline, but he came into this fight against Robert Whitaker with a lot on the line. If he had "quote unquote" destroyed Bobby Knuckles, Israel Adesanya said he was up next for a title fight. Previous to this, uh, Jared Cannonier's undefeated run through the middleweight division and even the way he fought, uh, you know, as a light heavyweight and a heavyweight, has been predicated around a lot of aggressiveness. He had three straight first and second round TKOs. Uh, Headed into this Robert Whittaker fight, what did you think of his performance against Bobby Knuckles? I thought that like uh, his lack of aggressiveness, kind of like it didn't seem like he could really get out of first gear. And I guess you got to credit Robert Whittaker for that. But I was kind of astonished by Jared Cannonier never really bringing it to Robert Whittaker in the way that I thought that he might.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I do think you have to credit Robert Whittaker for a lot of that because. It was a really smart fight by Robert Whitaker, and it was a smart fight then in kind of like a planning for the future stage there. Because at first, you know, you could see in the first round, Jared Cannonier was really looking to do some work with that leg kick, and Robert Whitaker was looking to do work with the jab. And as the fight goes on, it's Robert Whitaker's landing that jab and swelling up the the right eye of Jared Cannonier, which probably makes it tougher for him to see the punches coming. But then he's following the jab with the, the straight right hand. And then when Jared Cannonier starts to clue into that and is trying to is looking to avoid that follow up right hand that he starts to realize is coming behind the jab, and he's ducking his head off to the side. And then the way Robert Whitaker caught him was by setting him up, knowing that's going to be his response, and then coming with that high kick. So you catch him leaning right to the high kick, and that's the closest it came to being finished. Is that when Bobby Knuckles jumped on him after that? That's a that's a super smart approach by him. And Jared Cannonier, he didn't really find that urgency about coming back until after that point, like late in the third round where then he really tried to put it on Robert Whitaker, but it's too late. Then the guy can just kind of stop your momentum and uh, he's too far ahead on the scorecards by that point. So I thought it was a great fight by Robert Whitaker, but I agree with what Jean-Paul Sartre is saying here because well, as much fun as we had at first with the idea of hey, this this kooky Jared Canoneer coming in here with his stones of the earth and his yeah. crystals and all kinds of stuff and everything, it isn't this fun. And uh, you know, we lost Emmanuel, Manny, Newton, but we we gained Jared Canoneer in our lives. But then once you realize, like, oh, he might be beyond just kooky, yeah. especially like his Twitter presence and all his weird like QAnon stuff, and you go, man, not this year, Jared. Like this is not the this is not the year for us to just laugh off your bizarre and in fact actually literally dangerous political beliefs. Like we're we're not in a laughing mood on stuff like that right now and maybe we are breathing a little bit of a sigh of relief that we don't have to deal with it.
0: Yeah. What now for Bobby Knuckles? Comes back, uh, gets another win here over Jared Cannonier. As you said, a very smart performance. Quintessential Robert Whitaker almost to go out there and have this fight in the way that it happened and, and emerge with the victory. Says he wants another shot at Israel Adesanya but doesn't want to rush it, which I think is probably uh, both realistic as well as smart. Doesn't seem like we would fast forward Robert Whitaker straight into a title defense rematch against Israel Adesanya considering how things went the first time around. But you look around that uh, middleweight top 15, you look at the top end of the rankings there. I don't know that there's a ton of really, really stellar options for what you do next with Israel Adesanya. Like, uh, what do you think uh, you do here with, uh, I guess, first with Robert Whitaker? And then who might usurp him as number one contender here uh, if we want to get Israel Adesanya back in the cage?
1: Well, when Dana White was being asked about it afterwards, he seemed w- way more open than I would have expected to go ahead and book in that rematch with Robert Whitaker and his Adesanya. And I think that that's probably the thing to do. I understand that it's, you know, they just fought a year ago. his uh, Adesanya really dominated that fight, wasn't particularly close. But because Robert Whitaker is such a smart fighter… I'd be interested to see what adjustments he makes and how he goes about trying to solve the Israel Adesanya problem in the second fight. You know, you don't think he's going to go out there and do the, the exact same thing and hope for a different result. He's, he's smarter than that. So I'd be interested to see that one. Plus, I don't know how long can you just keep doing this thing where you go, well, we think we have a better contender, like a fresh contender. Let's put him up against Robert Whitaker to find out, because if he just keeps knocking down your, your other challengers, then you're not making any progress. You're just kind of making it harder for them to seem like a legitimate challenger at some point in the future. And plus if they try to put him in another one of these fights, you know, Robert Whitaker is going to be like, so we're just going to keep doing these until I lose one. Huh? Like, is that, is that what you're telling me? Because otherwise like, what's, what's the point if no matter what he does, he can't get like, he can't, you can't keep putting him into fights where it's a title Contender fight if he loses, but not if he wins. So I think you might as well go ahead now because it's like you said, there's not a ton of options that you look at in the 185 pound division and go, okay, this one, this is the guy for Isvadasanya. You might as well put Robert Whitaker back in there, see what you can do with a rematch uh, while the rest of the division tries to sort itself out.
0: Next question this week from Jizzy B writes, do you agree with the idea that if the UFC plays its cards right, they have three women's flyweight title fights lined up for Chevy chanks in Lauren Murphy, Jessica Andrade and Calvillo. Uh, Should the UFC just feed each bottom level contender in order to progress the division and protect it from the top, from top level cannibalism? Uh, Lauren Murphy obviously beats Lilia Shakarova, in the women's flyweight fight on the main card of UFC 254 uh, rear naked choke in the in the second round i'm going to come out and say the most impressive part of lauren murphy's performance was the post-fight address yeah because like you yeah. can, it turns out you put the mic in front of lauren murphy a she's prepared she's got some material she wants to get to and b uh it's going to be she's going to be there for a while she's got a lot to say and like more power to her as far as i'm concerned that's it's pretty much what you want to see out of a post fight interview not you know not somebody who's like oh i don't know like whoever the ufc wants next lauren murphy brought receipts like she could have been up there h ross perot style with like a uh a, a, some cards with graphs and shit on them pointing at them with a with like a pointer talking about how she's beating all these ranked fighters and she's not only going to go out there in her next fight and fight for the 125 pound title, but she's going to leave the cage with the belt.
1: Yeah. She did do good work in the post fight, not only just in the immediate post fight speech, but also in the press conference afterwards. Like she had a a whole presentation there to lay out. And, and I thought it was kind of effective, especially it's effective when she's making the point about like, look at what else they're trying to do with this division. There, there are not a lot of options that you can tell me are, better than what, like better than the resume that I have compiled to put myself forward. And so honestly, yeah, I respect it, especially because it's not like any of us have some one thing in mind for Valentina Shevchenko right now where we're like, okay, but we got to see this fight for her. Like She's kind of to the point right now where, you know what, make us an offer. Make us an offer of Valentina Shevchenko versus somebody, and then tell us later why the somebody is the right choice. Uh, and Lauren Murphy really, she, she did that. She was like, okay, here, and you, you could make the argument. Okay. And here she fights a debuting fighter from Uzbekistan with the Tegan and Sarah and a haircut. And it, maybe that win doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot, even if you go out there and you finish her, but still, you know, that was a replacement opponent. It's not really her fault. She's got a, a pretty compelling case that she can make there. And why not? Like, why not give Lauren Murphy that shot?
0: I absolutely agree. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Eamon Dunphy, our old pal. He writes, there, I am watching UFC 254, and on comes the advert for Abu Dhabi, one discussed a couple weeks back in listener mail. My other half sees it and is mightily impressed with it and now wants to go to travel to Abu Dhabi and Dubai. So, yeah, it works. Uh, I guess that's the that's like the best-case scenario if you're the UFC is you're, you're – you're, you're putting up Abu Dhabi tourism ads hoping that someone's wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, husband who's just there cuz they have to be sees the Abu Dhabi commercials and is like, "Hey, that place looks pretty nice. Look at these luxury boxes. Well, maybe maybe at some point we could sit in one of these luxury boxes or come out the mouth of a snake on an inner tube." Like that's that's your best-case scenario for these these shoehorned-in Abu Dhabi commercials that are on the UFC. Uh, pay-per-view broadcast because as someone comment, commented during the, the fight party, it's almost like the UFC and Abu Dhabi don't know the audience. It's like they don't know who's watching this shit because most of us, irregardless of the pandemic, probably don't have the coin to come out the mouth of a snake on an inner tube on the other side of the world.
1: Well, I think the UFC is probably thinking of it as, we don't care whether right. this advertising campaign works for you or not. It's just something we have to do in exchange for getting you to do all this other stuff that lets us host our events there and do all the quarantine bubble stuff you want to do and not have to pay for it. And in fact, make money from doing it. So it's like, all right, you want us to run this commercial for your stuff. And then also other stuff that is commercials for your stuff, but is a little less obvious about being that way. Fine. We'll do that stuff. Uh, If it works for you. Great. If it doesn't. Oh, well, you know, we, we can blame the pandemic or something else for the fact that, the ufc fight island did not result in a net increase in tourism for abu dhabi i don't think the ufc cares
0: yeah uh things really got weird during the uh the guided tour of the new arena there yeah like dana white is being shown around the new arena and that's the thing where they they like showed the the luxury box boxes uh and it was as we were like as they were showing that and we were sitting around watching the fights, that's the point when I was like, man, who do they think is watching this? And like, who is at home being like, Oh wow. The new arena in Abu Dhabi looks, looks very interesting. Like I can't wait to get over there and see if I have the money to sit in one of those luxury boxes. Uh, but I agree with you. It's just a, uh, the UFC has a, has an arena over there that they can use. And, uh, the government of Abu Dhabi paying for the bubble. And so, uh, I guess they can put anything they want to
1: on the air. Everybody goes home happy.
0: All right, Ben. Well, let's talk for a couple minutes about the stuff coming up this weekend. As we mentioned uh, at the top of the show, uh, it seems like we're finally going to get to uh, Bellator 250. Trying to get a date on this, October 29th. So that will be Thursday where they're doing the new Bellator events on Thursday, headlined by Gegard Mousasi versus Douglas Lima, which I said on an earlier episode of The Proper, really feels like it has stuck up on me, despite the fact that this is a rebooking of this fight. But uh, that's a good one, man. Like, if you're going to make time for Bellator in the otherwise UFC-dominated MMA uh, landscape, it could be this week, man. You you might want to make some time to watch this fight, because just in terms of uh, competitiveness inside the cage, this is one of the better matchups that Bellator could put out there.
1: Yeah, it is. And, you know, maybe the Bellator argument going forward is what else you got to do on Thursday? That's a tagline. They can have that. They can have that one for free with regards at the co-main event podcast.
0: That is some great marketing.
1: Yeah. You know what? It just came to me. I don't know what it it was. Just a gift I have.
0: That's it's really extraordinary. Yep. Uh, And then over in Abu Dhabi, of course, at the apex, you also get another middleweight fight here. It's purported to be Anderson Silva's final appearance in the octagon. It's taking on Uriah Hall. Uh, We have both talked about the likelihood that this ends up actually being Anderson Silva's last fight. I think we are both in agreement. Far less chance than that we actually saw the end of Habib Nurmagomedov's career last weekend. It doesn't seem like there's any way on this earth that you keep Anderson Silva out of a professional prize fight for the remainder of his days.
1: It does seem like the odds are against it. You know, just just, uh, with enough weird venues and rule sets and different promotions that could possibly offer Anderson Silva something going forward. I don't know. Maybe. I kind of hope so. Because it feels like – like Anderson Silva is one of those people where when we were having these conversations about the greatest of all time, like GSP, and what the value of going out on top is and stuff like that, if Anderson Silva had made some different decisions years ago, maybe he is more a part of that conversation. Yeah, You know, you could say the same thing about your, your boy Fedor Emelianenko as well, but harder for some people to give it up than others, I guess. And that's, But it has proved very hard for Anderson Silva to give it up, even as his body starts to betray him a little bit as he gets older. I don't know. I. It's kind of like, on one hand, it's really weird to be like, OK, one of the greatest fighters of all time. And at his time just, like, in his p- the peak of his powers, just an absolutely like beautiful fighter to watch. And yeah. you're telling me he's going to go out and a fairly meaningless fight against Uriah Hall on a UFC fight night event. Like, OK,
0: it's a bizarre matchup, isn't it? Like a I little bit. I mean, it's, it's, it's probably going to be fun. Like you could see how their striking styles could be complementary to each other, although I think you could also see how their fighting styles might not be complementary. Uh, but like, it's just a strange matchup to me. I don't, aside from the fact that I guess you need to get Anderson Silva a fight. I don't understand kind of what's in it for either guy because yeah. I think we've kind of surpassed the point where beating Anderson Silva is like a big milestone for a fighter, and I don't even know if Uriah Hall is up and coming enough that. You would look at a win over Anderson Silva and be like, oh, wow, three in a row now for Uriah Hall, including a win over Anderson Silva. He's definitely someone we need to pay attention to. Yeah, especially
1: because if you looked at Uriah Hall's, looked at the three, it would be like Bevan Lewis, Antonio Carlos Jr., Mm -hmm. and then Anderson Silva.
0: The greats, the three amigos, as they're called in the lore of MMA.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: If I told you I you could know. only watch one, if you could only do Bellator or you could only do the UFC, uh, which which one would you spend your time on this week?
1: Oh, Bellator for sure.
0: Yeah. Bellator
1: agree. main event is definitely better.
0: I agree. In any case, I guess that is going to do it for this weekend's co-main event podcast. Thanks, everybody, for checking us out. Thanks for everybody who emailed their questions, comments, and concerns in uh, for this week's show. If you want to be part of a future show, you know how to do it. You go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Don't forget, we'll be back on Wednesday with the live chat and then Friday for the uh, power hour like we always do over on the Patreon page, patreon.com slash comainevent if you want to get down with the team. We also have to, uh, this week, Ben, we got to figure out the the future of the movie club because we're uh, we ran out of the, we ended the David Fincher famous film director retrospective uh, last week and now we we got we need to move on to new business
1: we're also sitting here right now at 1091 patrons over yeah. there at patreon.com slash co-main event uh you know we've also got some upgrades which i'm counting no. toward our 100 new patron no, push you're not you're not Yes, i am you know, we've
0: already been over this you're not but because we we've had far more downgrades
1: we need we need the patrons to keep coming so we could force chad dundas to watch hereditary as our halloween I mean, special treat
0: you need 58 more right now, and that's, I got to say, that's a little bit too close for comfort, uh, even, even here, to get me to watch Hereditary. They're got a, a little lot. less than a week. We'll see what happens. Creeping, as I said. And uh, maybe, maybe if we don't get all the way there, we think it's something fun to do to, uh, for the new people who signed up. We can do some manner of broadcast that, you know, might not be as fun as watching me get super scared by Hereditary, but uh, might be fun all the same. Who knows? All right, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Thanks, everybody. uh We are done. We are through. We are out. Well, if you had to get a big old back piece, what would you get? Would be your back piece? What's the Ben Holtz back tattoo look like?
1: Well, I was going to go with a, a stylized manta ray, but it seems like Volkov regretted his, and so yeah. now I'm worried.
0: I've seen the pitfalls. What if you went uh, with the back tattoo that just looked like the front? What if when Ben Fulks turns around to make Ben Fulks face back
1: there? Okay, that's weird. How about uh, Optimus Prime? I'm just gonna go with a giant mural of Optimus Prime on my back.
0: You would immediately become my children's favorite guy if that were the case.
1: Then there's just a lot of reasons for me to pop the top off in public.
0: That's true. That's true. You're gonna be, uh, you're gonna be thinking again when I show them with my giant Decepticon back piece though well, people are going to see that and be like uh oh you got a, a feud brewing
1: also, they're also going to see that and know exactly what to make of your moral character